We're, we're going to be in Matthew 11 today. Matthew chapter 11. I'm going to read verse 18 through 30. Matthew 11, 18 through 30. Of course, the, the gospel writer Matthew writes these things, uh, but he writes them under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. And therefore, this is sacred, what we're about to do, to, to come under the authority of God's word, to hear from the Lord by the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's hear together the word of our Lord from Matthew 11, beginning in verse 18. For John, as John the Baptist, came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Then he, Jesus, began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than it will be for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him so come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke, yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. Well, you know, as I mentioned, I love Christmas. Um, I'm grateful that this is the beginning of the Advent season. Um, and of course, Christmas changes. You know, it changes the older you get. When you're little, Christmas is all about anticipation, right? It's all about looking forward. What am I going to get for Christmas, right? And for those of you who are little ones here in the room, I get it, you know, I've, I've been there. What am I gonna get? What am I gonna get for Christmas this year? It's a lot of anticipation, but when you, when you get to be older, Christmas becomes about introspection and reflection, right? You know, you're not looking forward as much as you're looking back. You know, when I was little, it was more, you know, what am I gonna get? Now it's more, who am I? <laughs> and, and who do I hope to become? As I mentioned, it's a great time to do some introspection, to think about your life, 
Think about what you're living for. Think about who you are. Uh, this week's been particularly introspective to me just with the loss of Lou that, I mean, it felt like it happened so fast. It felt like it came so quick. He's gone. And that's one of the reasons I'm really uh, excited about this series. We, um, we've been talking about it for a long time. I knew that it was on the, the preaching calendar, but I actually think it comes at a, at a really good time for me personally. It's called The Righteous Life of Christ. There's a, there's a little section of scripture. It's when Jesus is coming to be baptized in Matthew 3. And uh, let me just look at it with you. Jesus, of course, comes to John the Baptist to be baptized in the Jordan River. And, and the text says that John would have prevented him. I mean, this is Jesus. And so it says John would have prevented him saying, I should be baptized by you and you come to me. But then Jesus says, let it be so now for thus is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness, to fulfill all righteousness. I think that's something that we need to think about. It's a little phrase in scripture, but it's actually very important to understanding the life and ministry of Jesus. He came to fulfill all righteousness. We talk a lot about the birth of Jesus at Christmas time, the fact that God came to us incarnate. We talk a lot about the death of Jesus, that Jesus died for our sins. We talk a lot about the resurrection, the power of the resurrection. But what does this mean? What do we do with all the stuff in between the birth and the death of Jesus? What is the life of Jesus all about? In the life of Jesus, he was fulfilling all righteousness. He was living out righteousness. Now, when we think of the word, when we hear that word, righteousness, we categorize it in a moral frame, right? Right and wrong. And that that's right, but it's not complete. Uh, the, the, the word righteousness, um, the, the, the Greek for righteousness that's being translated is dikaiosune, and, and it, it has this meaning. It's more than just like, is this right or wrong? It's, it's, it's the same word as, justi- as justified, to be justified, or to, to have justification, to be counted right, to be counted whole, to be righteous, Right? to be complete, to to be whole, to be a whole person, to have a justified life. Now, again, that's not really language we use either, is it? People don't don't walk around saying, I am justified. But, and so I was thinking about, how how do we say this? Like, how do we talk about this? And I think what we say, I think the idea, the biblical idea of righteousness in kind of our modern age means this. It's, It's this idea of, I have made it, right? I've made it. I've made it. I'm justified. I'm righteous. I've made it. I've achieved something with my life. I've done something with my life. I'm somebody. I've, I've made it. I was talking to a friend of mine this week who just moved to New York. Uh, and my friend just moved to New York this year. And I said, well, how's New York going? You know, if you make it there, you can make it anywhere. And, and the reason that we identify with that, I mean, you know, that's not just Sinatra. We, we kind of... We, we kind of think, okay, that, you know, if, if New York says you're somebody, well, then Montgomery will really think you're somebody, you know. <laughs> you know, if Harvard says you're smart, well, then, you know, you're smart. If, if, if Forbes says you're rich, then you must be rich. You've made it, right? We have all these marks of righteousness, these marks of 
justification. And it's more than just success. I'm not just talking about you know, financial success here. There's, there's a reputation part of it. There's a, there's a perceived goodness uh, part of it. It's being concerned with all the right things. I've made it, I've done it, I'm justified, I'm righteous. Now, our desire for righteousness that we all have, it haunts us. The phrase, I've made it, implies something kind of past tense, right? I've made it. (laughs) It is behind me now. And the implication is I've made it, therefore I can rest. But the the problem with worldly righteousness, (laughs) the problem with this kind of modern understanding of righteousness is that, is that that how the people that have made it are like? (laughs) Resting? At peace, you know, you, you ever talk to somebody that lives in New York? You ever talk to somebody that graduated from Harvard? You know, you ever talk to a millionaire? You ever talk to these people that have made it? Is rest, peace, I've made it? Is that what's true of them? Or, they, or are, is it more like they have to keep making it? I have to make it over and over and over again. You know, I got the idea from this sermon, for this sermon series, uh, from listening to your baptism testimonies. We're going to have baptism today. But you all talk about righteousness in this way. But you all talk about it in different ways. Some of you say things like, you know what? I did everything my parents wanted me to do. I was a good kid. I obeyed my parents. And then I, I was empty. I was incomplete. I wasn't happy until I found the Lord. I did everything my church wanted me to do. You know, I was so good. I was so righteous. I was so obedient. But I really wasn't, you know. There was something wrong with my heart until I met the Lord. Or, you know, I was successful, right? I I did everything the world wanted me to do. I went to the right school. I made a bunch of money. But there was something nagging me. There was something so off in my heart. We're all looking for this sense of righteousness, this sense of I have made it. But the problem with I have made it, all of our worldly efforts of righteousness, first of all, they're all imperfect and we know they're imperfect. But secondly, the only way to really rest, the only way to really find a true and lasting righteousness, a complete righteousness is to know God. Because only God is righteous. (laughs) Only God is whole. I want you to hear this. Only God rests. And so rest, just like Jordan talked about last week, it's actually only really found in God. Paige and I went there, Paige, my dad and I went to go see Napoleon on Thanksgiving night. Paige didn't want to go. She says, too bloody. And she's right. It's very bloody. Um, uh, but I was excited to go see it. You know, Ridley Scott, I was excited to see a Ridley Scott movie, but it's only okay. I'll just go ahead and, it's only okay. I'd probably wait until it comes out. It is pretty epic on the big screen though. It's a lot of, as you know, you would expect from Ridley Scott, it's a lot of big kind of epic battle scenes. Um, but the story, it's only okay. But Napoleon, such an interesting person. You know, the the tagline is, he came from nothing, he conquered everything. 
And you know, that's kind of Napoleon. He didn't come from nothing, but he, he didn't come from some really, really great family. He came from a good family. And he worked his way up. He was a soldier and he took over the military forces of France. And he was the first emperor of France, of course, after the revolution. And you know, at the, t- at the height of Napoleon's reign as emperor, when you think about France, I mean, they basically controlled all of Western Europe. They controlled North Africa. They controlled um, a huge part of South America. They controlled most of the Western part of the United States. I mean, what, what used to be called Louisiana, what, what, you know, of course we bought from them, but um, I mean, it was a massive empire. I mean, he had made it, right? <laughs> I mean, Napoleon, he came from nothing. He conquered everything, but he hadn't really made it. As much success as he'd had, you know what he couldn't do? He couldn't rest. There was always somebody attacking him. His empire was never secure. There was always a problem. There was no rest in Napoleon. It's so interesting the way that the Bible talks about God. He created all the world in six days, and then God rested. Have you ever thought about that? That's so profound. That God both created and then is sovereign over, controls and orders the entire world all the time. But how does the Bible speak of him? (laughs) Rest, peace, shalom. Only God rests. And therefore, rest is only found in God. Righteousness, the kind of righteousness that actually leads to rest, leads to peace, it's only in the Lord. So back to Matthew 11. I know you're thinking, how does this have anything to do with Matthew chapter 11? You'll see. Three points from Matthew 11, what we see in this text, the problem with worldly righteousness, the problem with worldly vision, and the invitation of Jesus. Let's look at the problem with worldly righteousness. Go to Matthew, go to chapter 11, look at verse 18 with me. This is a very interesting text. So Jesus is talking about the greatness of John the Baptist and, uh, and, and how people rejected John the Baptist. And then he's, you know, he's talking about people rejected John the Baptist and they're gonna reject him too. And he says this, this is Matthew eleven eighteen. For John, John the Baptist, came neither eating nor drinking. So John, uh, most scholars believe he was a Nazarite. Now, not a Nazarene, right? So Jesus was a Nazarene, meaning he was from Nazareth. There's a lot of Nazars in the Bible. John was a Nazarite. He was from Judea. He wasn't even from the same place that Jesus was from. But the, the, the Hebrew Nazir, it means uh, consecrated or separated. John was a Nazarite. He had taken the Nazarite vow, which means that he was very serious about his faith, Right? He wouldn't have strong drink. He wouldn't, you know, give himself to eating, you know, any indulgent food. He didn't cut his hair. I mean, we know the story of John. He lived out in the wilderness. He was so committed to preaching God's word, to calling people to repentance. He, he lived a very humble and religiously strict life. John the Baptist, he came neither eating nor drinking. And what did they say of him? He has a demon. He's weird. <laughs> He's too religious. Jesus, on the other hand, was different. The son of man, Jesus came eating and drinking. I mean, Jesus, if you read the gospels, is kind of a partier. His first miracle was to turn, to create 150 gallons of wine. He's regularly going to feasts. Uh, you know, he's, he's in the house of tax collectors. He was a very approachable guy. 
He was a man of the people. He wasn't out in the wilderness. He was in the cities. He was, he was having fun with the people. Jesus came eating and drinking. And what did they say about him? Look at him, a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. It's a very fascinating section of scripture. It speaks a lot to kind of the moment that we are in, doesn't it? <laughs> Does this sound familiar? You know, I, I got on Twitter this week. I shouldn't have done it. <laughs> but I did. And it's amazing how critical the world is. And this is obvious. But I mean, that's the feature. <laughs> Critique. And I'm talking about, I mean, the, the people that I'm like looking at on Twitter are like pastor types. I mean, these are like, you know, Christian people that I'm looking at. And it's all critique. It's, it's this person's too harsh. This person's too soft. This person does this. This person does that. He a, has a demon. He's a drunkard. This has kind of been around a long time, hasn't it? You know, there's, a, there's an old phrase, you can't win for losing. And this is the problem of worldly morality. The problem of worldly morality is you're never moral enough <laughs> Or you're doing that, you should be doing that. This is the problem with moralism. You're never moral enough or your moralism isn't right. You don't drink, you're such a legalist. You don't drink, well good, but you shouldn't be dancing either. You know. Your morality is never enough or your morality, you should be focusing on this other form of moralism. You know, Martin Luther, um, you know, this is a pretty famous story. He got caught in a lightning storm. And, and I, I, I think about this more and more. I don't know if you've ever been around. Um, I had a bolt of lightning. I actually told this story strike very close to me a couple years ago. And it was so terrifying. I mean, shook me to my core. And so I can't imagine being caught in a storm with bolts of lightning or hitting the ground all around you. And so Luther, you know, he got caught in this lightning storm. And he's terrified. He thinks he's going to die. And he, he makes a vow to God. Look, God, if you save me, I'll go to the monastery. I'll, I'll give my life to righteousness. And of course, God saves him and he, he goes to the monastery and he gets to the monastery and he says, I want to be righteous. I want to be right before God. And they say, well, if you want to be righteous, you have to sleep on the straw on the ground. And if you want to be righteous, you can only have two pieces of bread per day. And if you want to be righteous, you have to do t these 10 chores every day. And so you know what Martin Luther did when he got to the monastery? He says, well, I want to be righteous. So he said, sleep on the straw. I'll just sleep on the stone. S -s -s two pieces of bread. I'll just have one piece of bread. Uh, 10 chores. I'll do 20 chores. I want to be righteous. I want to be righteous before God. And so I'll, I'll do this and more. And you know what the people said when he did all that? They said, Martin Luther, you're being too righteous, you know. You're making us all look bad. Calm down, Martin Luther, you know. This was all just a display of self-righteousness anyway. They showed their cards. But this doesn't feel too, this doesn't feel too strange, does it? Here's John. In the wilderness, he must be, a, he has a demon. Here's Jesus, came eating and drinking. He's a drunkard. This is the problem with worldly righteousness. You have to, you're either doing it wrong or you have to prove your righteousness over and over and over and over again. It's never enough. You know, I'm a big Seinfeld fan. And there's this episode where Kramer 
participates in this march for AIDS. And he, and he does that because he cares about these people with AIDS. And so he, he goes on the march, but he doesn't want to wear the AIDS ribbon, okay? So he's on the march. He just doesn't want to wear the ribbon. And of course, everybody as he's marching says, where's your ribbon? You don't like the ribbon? What do you not care about people with AIDS? What's wrong with you? And the, and the whole scene ends with Kramer basically being beat up and left for dead, you know? And, you know, Jerry Seinfeld and Larry David were onto something. They kind of saw how we are. <laughs> You're not doing the righteousness charade. You're not doing enough. It's the problem with worldly righteousness. It's, it's never enough. <laughs> You're never doing it right. And that leads to the second point that we see in this passage, the problem with worldly vision. And, and what I mean by this is a worldly vision of righteousness, a vision of righteousness that's not of the Lord. The, the next part of this passage is a very interesting passage of scripture. Jesus denounces these cities where he had done most of his ministry. So we see Chorazin, Bethsaida, and then down here, Capernaum. Now, it's not that, it's not that nothing good happened in these cities. I mean, Peter was from Capernaum. There were certainly people that came to follow him. But in large part, right, there weren't many followers of Jesus early on. In large part, the people didn't repent. It's interesting because, you know, I've heard people say, I hear people say this all the time. Well, if, if Jesus would do something in front of me, if God would come to me himself, then of course I would follow him, right? Well, this is what's happening here. I mean, Jesus is saying, I went to your city. I was there among you. I performed many signs and you did not repent. And it's a very harsh critique. He says, you know, it's gonna be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon. These were pagan cities. It's gonna be more bearable for Sodom. I mean, this is Sodom of Sodom and Gomorrah that God destroyed for their perversion and sin with fire and sulfur. It's gonna be more bearable for Sodom than it's going to be for you on the day of judgment. Now, there's a lot to take away from this section. I mean, three quick things, and I wish I had a whole sermon on just this section. You know, first of all, Jesus reveals different things to different people. Two, the level of judgment from God for sin is related to the level of revelation from God, the level of what God reveals about himself. But three, and this is really the point I want to, I have time for today. The kingdom of God came really close to these cities. I mean, Jesus himself, he performed many signs among them and they missed him. They missed him. The question would, would, we should be asking is why? Why did they miss real righteousness? Why did they miss the kingdom of God when it came so close to them? And the answer is this, and I want you to hear this. This is very important because they had a vision of righteousness. They had a worldly vision of righteousness and Jesus didn't align up for, with their vision. Their vision of righteousness kept them from seeing true righteousness. They had a vision of righteousness. You know, some of them had this big moral vision. If I do more good than bad, I'll be righteous. I'll know I'm righteous if I do more good than bad. I, I gotta just obey more of the Torah than I disobey, and then I'll be good. Or they had a vision of righteousness that was along the lines of tradition and race. This was very big. The Jewish people are going to be great. I wanna be a good Jew, and I want the Jews to be powerful. That's what's going to justify me. That's, if, if the Jews are powerful and I'm a good Jew, then I'll know I have made it. 
They had a vision of righteousness. The problem was, <laughs> Jesus didn't line up with their vision of righteousness. And we see this all throughout the Bible. Remember when Jesus went to the synagogue at Nazareth and he, and he read from the prophet Isaiah and he talked about the blind receiving sight and the year of the Lord's favor. And people say, I've heard, I see this in commentaries and it says, they rejected him. That's actually wrong. They, they didn't reject him at first. It, it, at first it says, when he read the prophet, uh, the messianic prophecy of Isaiah, at first it says they were pleased in hearing what he says. But then Jesus started saying, well, my kingship, my messianic reign is not just for the Jewish people. It's for the other people too. Remember when God healed Naaman and remember when God healed the Syrian woman? And when the people heard that, Jesus's kingdom, true righteousness, righteousness for God, wasn't, wasn't, didn't fit in with their vision of righteousness. That's when they wanted to throw him off the hill. Or what about, you know, throughout the ministry of Jesus, when he starts teaching, he does these miracles and they start to follow him. But then he starts saying things like, well, unless you, you know, eat my flesh and drink my blood, like in John 6. And then they say, whoa, 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 whoa. That's what's happening here. Jesus didn't fit their vision of righteousness. And so even though the kingdom of God came very close, I mean, more than the kingdom of God's been manifest in any city, at least up to this point. And he says, but they didn't repent. And it'll be more bearable on the day of judgment for Sodom than for them. I want to warn you of this. You know, the narratives that they believed, the vision that they had of righteousness was very strong. And because that narrative was so strong, it, it made it hard for them to see real righteousness, the righteousness of God when Jesus came right before them. But I want you to hear this. You live in a city, I live in a city where a vision of righteousness is just as strong. It's different. It's not Israel's going to be great, but it's, it's not too different. You know, I talk a lot about the Atlanta narrative. So you know you've made it in Atlanta if you're closing a deal, remodeling your house, or buying a doodle, or going on a great vacation, or, you know, talking about where your, friend, your kids are gonna go to school, you know. That's how you know you've made it in this town. Look at me, I've made it. I'm doing all this stuff. I'm a good parent, good worker, great vacations, great memories, great photo stream. But sometimes those visions of righteousness can cloud our vision. Now, I'm not saying anything is wrong with those things in particular, but that vision of righteousness can cloud our vision of true righteousness. It's like Jordan said last week, blank is my refuge and strength. How, how do you fill that in? What is your righteousness? How do you know that you've made it? And I want to warn you because I want you to hear this. There's a kind of Christianity that fits neatly in with a worldly vision of righteousness. There's a kind of Christianity that fits just neatly in with a worldly vision of righteousness. This is what we see here. If Jesus would have just kind of been the kind of Jesus that they wanted him to be, they would never have rejected him. And there's a kind of Jesus that's presented in our world today that fits neatly in with a modern American vision of righteousness. We, we had our little apprentice meeting this week and we were talking about teaching and preaching. It was a class on teaching and, and preaching. And, I, and I, I told the apprentices, I said, you know, really the goal of preaching is that God in our people would create truly virtuous people, right? Truly virtuous, truly Christ-like people. <laughs> now, what does that mean? 
When I was uh, in high school, my dad gave me the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. He said, you should read this book. And there's all these like good principles in there, you know. And I read the book and I was very impacted by it. And basically the book, um, it's a well-titled book. It's about how to win friends and influence people. But, uh, but basically in the book, you know, Dale Carney gives you all these pointers. He says, you know, look, if you want people to like you, remember their name. If you want people to like you, uh, show interest in the things that they're interested in. You know, be kind to them, act concerned with their life. And you do that stuff and people, you know, do like you. It's good for winning friends and influencing people. So it was a very impactful book when I was in high school. But then I get into college and I, and I start, and I'm not saying it's, it, there are some really good principles in there, but, but I get into college and I, and I really started growing in my faith. And I, and I started getting closer to the Lord and I started, I think, understanding grace in a new way. And I, I was thinking about this book one day and I was like, you know, it's good that I'm kind to people. But if the only, if the motivation for being kind to someone is just so I can manipulate them to make them do what I want them to do and have influence over them, then kindness is good, but I'm not good. And if the only reason that I like show interest in somebody else's interests is so that I can kind of gain influence over their life, well, that's a good thing to do. But what does that say about me? And it was really one of the moments in my life where I realized I don't, even, I don't need to trust in God's grace for my bad things, for just the bad things in my life. I actually have to trust the, in God's grace for the good in my life. If I'm just doing good things for selfish gain, and, and, and I didn't really know who Jonathan Edwards was at this time. I'd probably heard of you know, sinners in the hands of an angry God, but I, I didn't really know who he was. But what I was discovering as a little, you know, fresh-faced 20-year-old kid there at Auburn, what I was discovering was his idea of common virtue and true virtue. And he, and he wrote this long treatise you know, about this idea that, you know, that we can have common virtue. We can be kind and nice and gentle. But if, if the only reason for doing this is love of self, it's for my own self-interest, well, then is it really good? Is it really virtue? Is it really true? True virtue, of course, is doing the virtuous thing because you actually love the virtuous thing. It's telling the truth because you actually love truth, because you actually love God. It's, it's being kind because you actually love people and you're concerned with people because you love God and you love the people that he has made, don't you see? And I was talking to the apprentices this week and I, I said, you know, true virtue, it only happens, and I want you to hear this, it only happens as a response of worship. It really only happens. You, you, you say, well, okay, yeah, I want this. Well, it only, you only get here when you really know God and worship God, when you find the righteousness of God. And, and I just want to warn you because there's a kind of Christianity and even a kind of Christian preaching that actually just puts common virtue forward. It says, follow Jesus and you'll make better decisions. You'll be more successful. Follow Jesus and you'll be a better parent or, you know, be a better husband. Follow Jesus and you'll be a better person. And again, there, there is true wisdom in scripture. But if we're not careful, there's a kind of preaching and a kind of Christianity that reinforces a worldly Atlanta narrative vision for righteousness. 
It only reinforces follow Jesus so you can become successful according to the world and make it. And the problem with that is you might make it according to the world, but you'll never be righteous before God. The problem with that kind of Christianity, like all kinds of worldly visions of righteousness, here's another thing. It doesn't lead to rest, does it? Some of y'all have tried that kind of Christianity and it's like, now I need my next list of five things I have to do to be a better person and my next list of five things and I can never do it. And you're always spinning. It's a kind of Christianity that leads you to trust in yourself more, but it never really leads you to trust God. It never really leads you to worship. It never really leads you to love Jesus and to have communion with the Lord. It never leads to true virtue. And that leads to the final point, the invitation of Jesus. Look at verse 25. It says, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding. All right, so what is he talking about here? He's talking about the vision of virtue, the vision of righteousness. People have, they're so wise, right? They have such a vision for what is righteousness that the righteousness of God becomes hidden. He says, if you've hidden these things from you and you revealed them to children, people that come to God with this childlike faith, he says, yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. And then he says this, and here's where righteousness is found. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. You see what Jesus is saying here? He's saying there is a way to true righteousness. True righteousness is only found in God. When when God is your source and your life and your hope and your peace, true righteousness, a righteousness that leads to rest, it's only found when you have intimacy with the Lord. And our problem is, your problem and my problem is we're not righteous. (laughs) We're not righteous before God. Our hearts aren't aligned with God. We're not resting in the Lord. Our virtue, good as it may seem, it's not pure. We need something to change us. We need something to change our hearts. We need something to redirect us. And and don't you see, that's what Jesus has, has come to do. He's not just a model. A lot of people talk about Jesus as a model of righteousness, and he is a model of righteousness. You can understand righteousness by looking at Jesus, but he's not just a model. I want you to hear that. He's more than a model. And this is really the point of this whole series. He's come to fulfill all righteousness. This is the gift of the life of Christ to you. Jesus has actually come to live the life that you and I should have lived, not just to model it for it, but to live it on our behalf, to fulfill righteousness on our behalf so that through his righteous life, we can have fellowship with God. Through his righteous life, we receive a record of righteousness that brings us in to communion with God. Not based on our own imperfect virtue, because it's all imperfect, but based on his. This is, the, this is the power of the gospel. That Jesus has paid for the price of sin in his death, and that he's given you a record of righteousness by his life. He's fulfilled all righteousness. Now, 
If you believe that, if you get that, the question you should be saying right now is, how do I get that? How do I get, that's, that's what's called made it, right? You would have such a record of righteousness assigned to you that you could have fellowship with God where, you, where there's actually rest, where there's actually hope, where there's actually peace. How do I get into that, you might be saying. Well, Jesus says here, look at verse 27 again. He says, all things have been handed over to me by my father. No one knows the son except the father and no one knows the father. You, you can know the father, but no one knows him except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. We may be saying, well, has God chosen to reveal these things to me? Has Jesus chosen to reveal these things to me? And that's what I love about this text so much is the very next thing that Jesus says. And I want you to hear this today. You want rest? You want righteousness? The very next thing that Jesus says to all of these people listening is an invitation to them It's an invitation to you by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's an invitation to you right now. December 3rd, 2023, here's what Jesus says to you right here at Christ Covenant Atlanta, Georgia. Come to me. Come to me. Come to me. Come to me. All, right? All. Come to me all who labor, right? who are working your tails off to make it, to find some sense of righteousness. He said, no, no, if you labor, no, come to me. All who are heavy laden, all who are weighed down by their sin and by guilt and by the sense of inadequacy, Jesus says, come to me. Come to me. Come to me. Come to me now. And I will give you rest. The the kind of rest that comes in knowing God. Dane Ortland wrote a book about this verse, and here's one of his, here's one of the little lines. He says it so well. You don't need to unburden or collect yourself and then come to Jesus. Your very burden, your very burden is what qualifies you to come. As I've said, you know, Christianity is the only club that you have to have a bad resume to get in because you don't get it. You don't get it. You can't come to Jesus with a good resume. You can only come to him if you're laboring, if you're heavy laden. No payment is required. He says, I will give you rest. His rest is a gift, not transaction. Whether you're actively working hard to crowbar your life into smoothness, labor, labor or passively finding yourself weighed down by something outside of your control, heavy laden, Jesus Christ's desire that you find rest, that you come in out of the storm, outstrips even your own desire to find rest. Take my yoke upon me, he says, and learn from me. I'm gentle. I'm lowly in heart. And in me, Jesus says, you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He's achieved all righteousness. He's paid the price of our sins. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? And and here's here's the way in. It's surrender. His his yoke is easy. (laughs) You just have to surrender. You just have to trust him. You just have to repent and and, and turn from all these false things and turn to him to to surrender and turn to him in faith. 
He's fulfilled all righteousness. Let's pray. Before we pray, um, just as we meditate on this, I want to ask you, what are you trusting in? What is your righteousness? What is your sense of righteousness? What are you trusting in? And has it given you rest? Or has it made you heavy laden, exhausted? Jesus' invitation to you and to me and to all of us, that's the beauty of this, is come to me. Come to me. His yoke is easy. The, The burden is light. Come to him. And today in this moment, I just invite you, whatever it is that's been keeping you from him, whatever it is that's captured your imagination and heart, Repent. Turn away from that. And trust. Trust in Jesus. Father, I pray that you would increase our faith today. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see. That we would not have a vision of righteousness that keeps us from true righteousness satisfying righteousness. Righteousness that actually gives our souls rest and joy and peace. I pray, Father, that even now we would come to you and find this peace you give. That we may come to you in Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen.